that then we learn how to apply the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ to our lives. We repent of our sin in these groups. We help each other learn the gospel in these groups. We help keep each other on track on mission in these groups, and we help move forward with with these groups. We don't have other programs in our church. Uh, There's lots of great ideas. We've actually had people approach us about great ideas for programs, and we've said no to them because we want to say yes to this way of doing life together. It helps us because we're in an urban core and we don't have space, so actually programs wouldn't really be that much of an option for us. But that's really how we go about doing uh, what we believe Jesus has called us to do. So if you're new, that's just a kind of a, a, a way of explaining what urban grace is about. If you're not new, you actually were running through those words in your head with me, and you can repeat them to others um, after the service if they ask you what urban grace is all about. So uh, not, no announcements other than next week we begin our new series called I Am Following. Uh, we left the, that blank because some of you are actually following other people in the way that you live. Some of you believe in Jesus Christ. Some of you believe the good news of Jesus Christ, but you're actually following someone else's wisdom in your life. You're actually following someone's way of life and doing things. And we want you to consider following Jesus in a variety of areas. We haven't decided the entire series yet. That's because part of it's up to you. So we have this cool little thing on a website called a voting box. You can go on to urbangracechurch.com. Uh, still give some votes yet. Uh, there's At this point, there was 62 at last check. I think maybe there's more this morning. Um, but yeah, you can only vote once in your, like, what IP address. So, like, move, go to Starbucks, then go to higher ground and vote if you want to really um, taint the numbers, uh, which is fine by me. I, I'm not really worried about it because uh, I think... Uh, what is happening is the, the, right, uh, the right topics are coming up. Um, and it is interesting what even, I'm, I'm a little surprised at what number two is. I won't tell you what it is, but you should go check it out. It's pretty interesting. Um, did not expect that one. So that's a shameless plug for going to the website. You can do it right now if you haven't voted yet. Uh, UrbanGraceChurch.com and put your vote in. So those are the announcements. Um, Let's pray and then let's dig into the text. Jesus, this morning we need to hear from you and we need your Holy Spirit. We cannot possibly understand what we're supposed to learn today without your Spirit. Um, You've given me a clear understanding of the text, but Jesus... I got that through your spirit, and so I pray for your spirit to really come upon us this morning in a special way. That we don't hear a preacher, we hear the Holy Spirit of God. And we hear from him, and we follow him in whatever you have to teach us this morning. I pray you would prepare our hearts, and I pray pray you would prepare our lives and the mission before us, because the difficult thing this morning, Jesus, is not to hear your word, it's to obey it. So give us the courage to obey your word this morning. In your name I pray. Amen. Okay. Um, I'm crying tears of joy, by the way. Uh, Just a a weird thing that has happened. I didn't plan this out. I'm really not this smart or this manipulative. At least I hope not. But when we planned the series out, I just divided the text up and really kind of sequentially just went through like what days am I not going to be preaching and then halfway through the series we had this thing called church planting Sunday and so we did it kind of a video and pushed everything off and I'm not even kidding you it's crazy this has never happened to me sorry it always happens to me Um, the truth is God has his plans and today's text is actually about dads And I didn't even plan that. Like, I had no intention of doing that. In fact, I had planned, if you see on those little cards, to do this last week. But for some strange reason, when the entire world, I shouldn't say the entire world, the entire North America is thinking about things like Father's Day, because they can make a lot of money off this, and, and Hallmark, this is, this is what they, they do this for. They're the ones pushing it. But while everyone is thinking about dads, Jesus has us listen to what he has to say about a very strange experience in Jerusalem 
where Nehemiah has quote-unquote Father's Day sermon, except that his Father's Day sermon included like hair pulling and screaming. So um, maybe that's in line with um, what's happening around the world today. Uh, a lot of times guys come in, especially fathers on Father's Day, and they expect to get beat up. But I'll, I'll be honest with you, this, this, you're lucky. Today's just about getting your hair pulled. It's not about getting beat up. So um, we really need Jesus to speak on, a, on this issue because this is a tense issue for all of us because it's very real to us. Um, I can't tell you how many times I'm sick and tired of daddy issues. I'm tired of it. I'm tired of a generation of dads that gave up. And part of me uh, knew that this was coming, but not in this way. And I know that part of why we're here at Urban Grace is to become the next generation that lifts dads up and helps dads be dads. And so hang on. We've got uh, quite a bit to do. I'll get through it as fast as I possibly can. But you know me. Uh, that's kind of a lie. So let me um, read the text for you and then we'll, we'll get to it. So Nehemiah chapter 13, you can all collectively breathe a sigh of relief. Nehemiah is done at this point. Um, no more Nehemiah. We're moving into Proverbs. And we're going to talk about ladies next week. So Nehemiah chapter 13 verses 23 to 31. In those days, I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. You don't see that on your mug, by the way, do you? It, uh, blessings. Um, that's not a verse that really makes it underneath the painting. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin." Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. We just cannot get rid of this guy in the text. And therefore I chased him from me. That's the Bible's soft way of saying he kicked him out of the city. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I establish the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for good. That's a good prayer by Nehemiah, because if God doesn't remember him, he is dead. Uh, he's in big trouble at the very least. Well, what's happening in the story? We really have to go through it. I've named this story uh, very affectionately. Next slide, please. Um, hair pulling and a historical lesson. Uh, because it's the hair pulling that really sticks out in our minds, isn't it? That's a little bit of a strange one. Um, but let's just kind of go through the text and, and let me get you up to speed as to where we are actually in the series. The series is, a, is called Magnesivitus, which literally means uh, it's Latin for great city. And that's because that's what this story is about. This story is about Nehemiah being part of rebuilding the great city of God. The, the city of Jerusalem is a place that, that God had decided to come in power and in presence on that city. We're not sure why he chose this city. It just, he chose that city. That's all we really know about that. But when he chose that city, he chose people to be in that city. He chose the temple to be in that city. He chose people to build that temple. And, and one of those builders is actually in our text this morning. So one of, the, one of the forefathers of this great city is Solomon. That's why it's so interesting that this historical lesson that Nehemiah brings into it. But the story really is, is, 
all about Nehemiah being called out of his great job in Persia. He has literally assistant king status in Persia as the cupbearer to the king. It means he drank the wine before the king did. That means if you got poison, if you try to poison it, the cupbearer would die first, um, not the king. That was the whole point. It was someone you would give only if you trusted that person with your life. So Nehemiah has this great job, well-paid job. He is not worried about his finances in this job. It's secure. But somehow Jesus breaks the heart of Nehemiah. Nehemiah leaves this great job and he comes and he moves to a city that literally lies in ruins. And it has lied in ruins for 141 years. And no one has done anything about it. People have actually tried. And they've given up because of actually relatives or people like Sanballat and Tobiah. And Sanballat is still in the text. He's still giving Nehemiah grief. The reason why I bring up his name is because if you read through the whole book, which is highly recommended, you will see Sanballat and Tobiah, San and Tob, if we, we call them. And they constantly give opposition to Nehemiah and his project. But Nehemiah has razor-sharp focus. He knows that he's called to build the city of God, and he does that by rebuilding the walls, but then that finishes in about chapter 6 or 7. And once the rebuilding of the walls is done, Nehemiah's real work begins. Some people think it was a great feat that Nehemiah was in charge of a rebuilding project where they rebuilt ancient city walls in 52 days. That's impressive, You know, considering it probably takes about 52 days to get a building permit in Calgary with all the technology that we have. So it's impressive what Nehemiah does in terms of logistically. But I think more impressive is Nehemiah's razor sharp understanding of what kind of community God is building. So see, while Nehemiah is building a city, really he's building in some ways a city within that city. He's building a people who are a city. He's not just building structures. This is cool for us. This is autobiographical for us because we too are called to help build a city. No, not just the physical parts of the city, but to be like a city within a city, an alternative city, a city that actually loves Jesus and affects the city. We actually believe that if you become a Christian, serve Jesus, you will be a better citizen in this city. And so this is a perfect book for us. And there's lots of great lessons to learn from this book. And at the very tail end of Nehemiah's kind of about two years, they say, his two-year ministry, what happens is Nehemiah then, he gets these people to sign a covenant. In chapter 10, he gets them to sign a covenant that basically says, we will do these things. And this covenant is not about kind of keeping the city safe. It's not about like how many acres are in a block. This covenant says, we will follow the word of God. We will tithe. We will have these standards for leadership. We will do the priesthood rightly. We will Sabbath keep and we will not intermarry. I mean, that sounds crazy to you, right? Like, if you can imagine, like, Urban Grace is going to throw out this membership covenant, and one of those things is we're not going to intermarry. I think there'd probably be some people who have question marks about this. But this intermarrying thing is actually a pretty deep issue. And so now we're into our story. Because in chapter 13, Nehemiah's actually returned after about a 12-year hiatus from the time when he began. So it's about 12 years from the time. So we figure it's maybe 10 years since he's been back in Jerusalem. Commentators can't ever agree on this. We don't have a lot of information. He could have like done some scouting trips and some situation reports. Uh, who knows? Uh, but, but regardless, things have drifted from where people had signed this covenant. And what's interesting is the very things that they had drifted into were the very things they themselves had signed the covenant for. So it's important that we we see that and we hear that because this is literally historical drift. This is a result of the people forgetting what they were called to do. Now, this is really challenging for us. Because we can never forget what we're called to do here in the city. We cannot get sidetracked with what we're about. 
we must be able to say, like Nehemiah, we are too busy doing a great work for Jesus. We cannot get sidetracked with all these other great things, all these other great hobbies. If it fits into our mission, fine. But if it does not, we must, like Nehemiah, say, no, we're doing a different work. We're called to a different thing. Now, some of that is not simply doing things for God. Part of that is being things of God. So what's interesting is that Nehemiah doesn't say, you know, you're uh, letting a lot of different people come into your city. You're, you know, you're not doing. He does some very, he says, you're not giving, you're not taking a day off and you're not taking care of family life. Like, this is remarkable that Nehemiah does this. And I thought it was so important that when I originally looked at it, I said, we, I think we have to deal with these things separately. I didn't actually specifically talk about giving in chapter 13, but I could have because I thought we needed to hear again the seriousness of sin. Turns out, Holy Spirit wanted to do that. Biggest Sunday we've ever had at Urban Grace. <laughs> On the one Sunday that I didn't want any visitors. Ha ha, Jesus, right? This is the way he works. He does what he wants to do. Even today, I was like, okay, really? Like, seriously, you're going to land this Father's Day thing? I thought I could maybe avoid the stigma of trying to beat up on the dads. But it turns out that the text does it kind of for us. And so we're all going to get a little beat up by it. Everyone, men and women this morning. Because it's a message we all need to hear. This whole issue of intermarriages is really sensitive in, in these days, and we have to kind of culturally get our mindset into what's going on there because this is not simply like interracial marriage. Like, this is not what we're talking about. So for those of you who are thinking potentially about interracial marriage, this is not what we're talking about here. The gospel's pretty clear on this, that this is not about race. This is not about skin color. This is not even about culture. This is about worship. What's happening here is the people of Israel, the people, the men of Jerusalem are allowing daughters to marry men who worship other gods or vice versa. Sorry, vice versa. They're allowing their, their uh, men to marry women who worship different gods and have kids. And so, as you look in the text there, you can see Nehemiah's frustration. He's like, okay, first of all, this is against the rules. Like, all you have to do is look in the text. And you can see in places like Leviticus, do not intermarry. Don't marry someone who's not Hebrew. It's that clear. And Nehemiah's like, if you just even read the text, you would find out this is a problem. And then he says, but that's not even enough there. They don't even know Hebrew. So you've got grandkids who are supposed to be building a city that loves God, that proclaims God, that represents the presence of God, and they can't even read the word of God. They can't even speak it. And he gets angry. What we are not sure of is whether this is right or wrong. (laughs) Some of you read that text, you're like, I'm not sure what to think about this whole hair pulling thing. I I, I joked a text around this morning to a a couple of guys that I felt could take it safely. And I said, be careful, because I'm going to just try this on Sunday and see how it works, just as a joke. Some didn't get it. Because it's, it's such an act of violence. We're not really prepared for that kind of violence. But, but again, let me explain. He, he confronts them. He curses them. He basically says, look, it, you signed up with God not to do this. What is wrong with you? Notice I, I said originally that he, he had kind of scalped them. No, he didn't scalp them. He pulled their hair. Now, here's what's interesting. First of all, um, you know, all the guys who like had gone to the barber that week. I mean, weren't they grateful? It's like, what are you going to do? But... Um, the point was not really that he beat them up. The point was he publicly humiliated them and shamed them. 
I think we need to grasp that. This is not just kind of an act of violence. This is not just Nehemiah losing his temper. This is Nehemiah aggressively protecting the covenant that he watched them sign. I mean, it's aggressive. It's maybe a little bit beyond what you and I would would do. But there's some sort of this public humiliation. Now, it's funny. We get mad at Nehemiah for doing this, but we, we would applaud any coach in the NHL finals if midway through the game, the coach pulls everyone into the dressing room and says, what's wrong with you guys? Are you chicken? Get out there and fight like the team that you know how to be. And he shamed them into it. Nobody would bat an eye at that. Everyone would say, that coach really, you know, he knows how to inspire. This is what Nehemiah is doing. He's publicly humiliating these men so that they know what God means. So that they understand, this is serious business here. We're not playing games with this whole city building business. This is not a joke to me. You don't quit your job in Persia to march, you know, hundreds of miles across the country to see guys playing video games on couches while their daughters sleep with whoever they want. Right? Like, if you're a good dad, you, you, you do something about that. You say something. You know, how many of us who have like been caught been doing something in the basement by our parents? No one's going to raise their hand. I know. I understand. Okay, so I'm the only one apparently who's ever been caught doing something. And your dad just looks at you and just like, boy. And you know he means business. Some of you haven't had dads who did that. And you wish you had a dad who would do that. Who would lovingly come after you and say, not on my watch. There's no way. And this is Nehemiah saying, what's wrong with you guys? What the heck is wrong with you? All it takes is a couple of years. All it takes is a couple of pretty ladies. And you can't keep your pants on? What's wrong with you guys? Do you not understand that you represent the Holy One of Israel, the God of the universe? Do you not get that? Here, let me pull your hair. Maybe you'll get that. And then he gives them this historical lesson and he says, dudes, you guys, like all you have to do is take a quick look back at your own history not long ago. Do you know why you're in exile, guys? Do you know why we had to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem? Because your great granddad, Solomon, couldn't keep his pants on. These ladies would... Traps through and the wisest man in the world, the one that God literally said, I'm going to make you the wisest person in the world. And a deep V-neck distracted him. And he's like, I could have a couple of those wives. I'm the king of the world. And he did. And you know what, friends? We don't even know if Solomon ended his life loving God. There's no proof that that Solomon loved God at the end of his life. We know his life ended pretty badly. That's why he wrote a book called Ecclesiastes that basically said, I give up. It's all useless if you don't have God. I mean, this is serious. Nehemiah is serious. That's what got you here. And then, and then he's, he's done this. And then he goes to find like, like Sanballat's, like, I think it's his grandkid, how that works. It's complicated, I know. So for, if I make a mistake about that, forget that. Was it son-in-law? So in other words, the very place that should be an example of what a dad is supposed to do, of what a father is supposed to do, is now an example of the most sinful thing you could possibly do. We don't have anything in comparison like this, but it wouldn't take very long for us to make a comparison like this. Very few of us will tolerate a pastor who sins repeatedly. But a pastor who sins really grotesquely, like, can you imagine, for, like, this may be funny, but can you imagine if there was a pastor in this city that was struggling with murdering people? 
How long do you think he would last in the city? Not just in his church, but in the city. How fast do you think people would want to run him out? How fast do you think people, even those who aren't Christians, would say, there's something wrong here. But this is kind of the extent of what's happening. It's the highest form of treason against God. And so Nehemiah chases him away. The text says, really, that's the Bible's way of of saying he kicked him out. He kicked him out of the city. It's like, you're done here. Yeah, but what about my Ikea furniture? Tough, I threw it all out. Get out. It's like, this is a wolf, and you're destroying the sheep. You're gone. You don't belong here. Again, very harsh, very violent, don't you think? Nehemiah could use maybe... um, he, didn't, he wasn't married, I don't think. He was a eunuch, which is a whole other story, but he could have probably used a wife at this point going like, honey, calm down, honey, calm down. But he didn't have it. He didn't have a wife who helped that. But what I don't want you to hear is like, okay, guys, what we're going to do is we're going to form the hair-pulling club and kick people out of our city that aren't obeying God. That's what you could hear. What I want you to hear is take all that pent-up, violence and anger and direct it towards your own sin in that battle and direct it toward energy elsewhere where else okay glad you asked these are our three principles we can get from the text number one direct your energy toward a sense of urgency in dealing with sin two weeks ago i stood here um, barely awake and talked to you as I felt a dad had to talk to his children in some ways to explain what the discipline of the Lord is like. I'm not, I'm not your dad in that sense. I'm not the Lord. I'm not even the convictor. But that's what Jesus asked me to say. And, and, and then I, I reminded you at the end of that service, I knelt down and said, no, I don't like doing that. It's not fun for me. Just like it's not fun disciplining my own children. Have you seen my kids? I mean, they're beautiful. I mean, they're cute. Like, it's hard to discipline a kid that looks, it's just beautiful. It's hard to do. But a loving dad, that's what a loving dad does. And this is kind of, in this, it's in the same chapter. We, we can't remove that from the text. That there's this sense of urgency that we get from Nehemiah. There's this sense of violence. Not a hatred towards people. Look what he does at the end of the text. He's like, okay, I'll pay for this to get back on track. That shows you a little bit of Nehemiah's heart in this, doesn't it? Like, it's like, this church is a mess, and I'll pay for all the counseling to get this thing back on track. Can you imagine if I did that for you? I'm not going to, by the way. But it would say something about my real heart towards that, wouldn't it? But this is what I love about this text. This is what I've seen in this text, is that Nehemiah gets real violent towards the devastation that sin brings. And yes, this is part of a repeated sermon, but friends, fathers especially, we have got to take note of this. We have got to quit pouring our energy in to our own kingdom to our own lifestyle and begin to direct all our anger that we have toward our own sin and battling our own sin so that we can lead our people well. I really feel like that is a mantle that is upon the men. I do. Ladies, you're not going to get out of this because there's stuff for you to do here. So don't tune out. Hear me out. But just like Nehemiah actually goes to the dads, pulls their hair. He doesn't pull the ladies' hair. This is what's wrong with you marrying these guys. He puts the responsibility on the dads and says, grow up. And friends, we need this urgency. Our city is going to hell. Our family life is terrible in this city. Some would say it's good. Those who would say it's pretty good mostly know those people as fairly fake. I can't tell you how many times I have talked to someone about some sort of father issue. 
And I want to say, can we be a church that stops that? Can we be a church that takes this seriously? Can we just come out and say it? We are trying to help develop our men so that they lead and serve our city. Can we just say that out loud and not be bashful about that? And not be afraid that that's where we stand on that? I know Jesus has asked me to do that. Because sometimes I think in our culture, we're just so afraid to get this sense of urgency and responsibility. Like, we're going to have to beat up our men. Yes, we are, because we need it. But can you see that in the text? This sense of urgency to deal with sin? It's interesting, even the business world gets that. John Cotter uh, writes an entire book called Urgency aptly named. And he says the number one problem businesses have is all about creating a sense of urgency. And that the first step in a series of actions needed to succeed in a changing world is to get urgency. He's like, so manufacture it. I'm saying, friends, you don't have to manufacture the urgency by which we need the gospel to be alive in the city. Jesus actually said, don't bother praying for the harvest. Pray for workers in the harvest. The harvest is there. The opportunities for the gospel to work in our city are there. We do not have to look very hard for them. We have discovered in the last three years that there's a big shift. Some of us are like, we're looking for mission. We're looking for people that need the gospel. We're looking for this. Stop looking for it. Start looking for workers. That's what we really need. We need people to take this seriously. And it actually doesn't begin with you just trying to serve other people. It begins with your own personal holiness. It begins with the way you battle sin, men. You want a better family? Look here first. Before you look anywhere else at your problem children. Or your wife that just doesn't get it yet. Look in the mirror. Get that sense of urgency. And if you need to, get someone to pull your hair. I'll do it. I need my hair pulled too, friends. What else do we see? We see little sins lead to big sins. What's interesting is this intermarriage actually basically comes as a result of the lack of tithing and the lack of Sabbath keeping. Like, when's the last time you heard a sermon on, maybe the reason why you're unhealthy, maybe the reason why you need to to deal with this is because you don't give and you don't take a day off. Like, that's strange to me. I've actually wondered, like, is one of the reasons why we seem to keep battling our sin because we won't take Jesus seriously. In other words, where are you disobeying Jesus in the little parts of your life? And expecting him to show up in the big parts of her life. How often does this happen? We're like, Jesus, show me, give me direction on something. Meanwhile, we, we think nothing of it to constantly lose our temper at work. Or we don't think our, our, even though Jesus has asked us to give of our money and serve in the church, we don't think of that as like affecting the other things. But I think Nehemiah clearly shows us This actually makes a difference everywhere. Like it's all connected. Like you can't just isolate one sin from another and just go, well, uh, you know, uh, I'm going to deal with um, my greed over here. But, you know, once I'm done that, then I'll deal with my lust. And then after that, then I'll deal with my materialism. It just doesn't work that way, friends. It all comes together. And you need to believe in Jesus who is the only thing that's better than those things. He's the only solution. The cross of Jesus brings your identity to a point where you can now say no to things, not because those things don't seem good, not because those things don't call out to you and beckon to you, not because those things don't provide some sort of immediate pleasure. Believe me, I've done them too. They do provide immediate pleasure, but they do not provide your mission and wholeness. But they all tie in together. So let me just ask this question to the men today, the fathers. What little sins are you overlooking 
for the sake of the big sins. You can, everyone can apply this, but today we're asking the men to ask this question of themselves. What small places in your life are you compartmentalizing and instead just thinking about the big sins? Well, I'm at least not doing the big sins. It's interesting, one of my good friends, his dad, um, has a, a, a deals with people all the time. And as he told me the story that when they do interviews, one person will do an interview and the other person in the interview will go check out the guy's car and the condition of his car. Fascinating story. Why does he do that? Because he doesn't want to know just how that person is in front of a couple people in a two-hour span. He kind of wants to know, how is he living in his life? How is he keeping his private life in the places where nobody is looking? Right? Some of us are all like, yeah, everything's in our life is going together. And then you're like, but don't come to my house. Because it's a mess. And while I'm, I'm not even saying this morally right or wrong, I'm saying... But that's sometimes what we do spiritually. We're like, wow, you know, I'm not doing the big sins, but it's these little things. Don't come deep inside me because you'll just find it a mess in there. Guys, what small sins are you overlooking? Do you cheat your boss at work out of time? Do you mark extra hours that you don't actually work? Have you neglected to give money that you know Jesus has convicted you to give? Have you neglected to teach the gospel to your wife that you know Jesus has asked you to do? Have you lost your cool and failed to make it right? Have you lied regularly? Are you living a lie? Friends, we're not going to get this business of taking over the city and, and, and spreading the gospel in this city while we neglect our own personal holiness. It's just not going to happen. I do not believe Jesus will do it. And I don't want him to. Because what we'll have is we'll have more people and it's just going to be a hollower place. We need men, real men. We need real husbands. We need real fathers. We need single men who love Jesus and know how to repent of sin, know how to deal with their own sin, so that other men can come along and find them, and so the ladies can finally go, finally, some men who know how to preach the gospel to themselves. I'm not done yet. This is the one that really hits. And truthfully, I'm crying because I'm angry. I'm angry that for far too long in my life, I have lived on my own mission. And I've bought into the lies that I'm preaching against. And not thought carefully about the next generation. There is nothing that will grab your attention like having children. Am I right, ladies and men? Those who have just had children? There is nothing that God uses in your life quite like that. Getting married is one thing. Finding a boyfriend, getting a new job, that's one thing. But having a child, it's literally like God spiritually grabs your hair and pulls it and says, your life just changed. And you begin to think differently. You begin to think, this is not just me and my husband. This is not just me and my wife. This is not just me and my friends. This is the next generation that's at, heart, at stake here. And that's exactly what Nehemiah says. Do you not get this, you guys? You fathers, he says. These kids don't even know Hebrew. This is 12 years later. What's going to happen in 50 years? Is there anyone who's going to worship God in this city? Or is it just going to be filled with people who don't even know how to read the Word of God? And the way that Nehemiah reacts here shows us his great concern, not simply for the immediate personal holiness of these people, but for the future. And today I want to challenge us men. 
Let's quit just thinking about our little puny lives, our stupid missions that we have. Let's start thinking about the next generation. Let's think carefully about this. Like how many of you are grateful that there's a gospel preaching church in Kensington? Anyone? Is there anyone happy about that? Okay. I want you to be happy about that. I'm happy about that. I'm happy this is a place where I can preach the gospel. But friends, 50 years from now, is there going to be a church in Kensington? Is there going to be a church anywhere in Calgary that's still preaching the gospel? There won't be if we don't think about the next generation. There will not be. If your mindset towards um, the gospel is just about you and you're not thinking, how do I get beyond this? Where are your kids going to go to church? Where are your grandkids go to church? Don't you want that experience for them? It starts now. That's what Nehemiah says. It starts now. It starts with you. D.A. Carson has famously said one, he's actually talking about Mennonites. We're actually officially a Mennonite church. So this is kind of in our history. One generation of Mennonites believed the gospel and held that there, held as well that there were certain social and economic and po- political entailments, meaning there were implications of this. That's the first generation. Then he said the second generation, the following generation assumed the gospel. And denied that it had implications. And the third generation denied the gospel and denied everything. And he says, you're one generation away every day. You're one generation away from your church not believing the gospel. A couple of decades. You want that happening, men? Not on my watch. No way. But how about you? It can't just be me. It must be us. It must be Jesus grabbing hold of our hearts so vividly that we cannot not do it. I think we need to simply take some time in our lives to think carefully about how we, again, what I'm angry about is, is the, the lack of fathers that I keep hearing about. Because there's literally nothing else I can do but be a good dad and scream at fathers. I'm making a lot of mistakes. I happen to have an awesome wife and a great family. Kids who believe in a dad who's supposed to do this. But I want all of us to have this violent attitude in some ways toward this idea, not on my watch. Not if I can help it. How does this look practically? It means that dads simply take seriously this call to be a pastor to their own families. First of all, a pastor to themselves. So this is what it looks like uh, practically. Guys, whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you have children or not, you are called to be a pastor. First of yourself, then of your wife or of people around you, and then of your children, your larger family. That's what it means. Sounds impossible? Anyone feel like being a pastor? No, it's impossible. That's why you need the Holy Spirit's power to do it. That's why don't even dare you try to do this without Jesus. It won't work. You'll never have the courage to do it without without the firm, proclaimed identity that you have in Jesus Christ. You will never be able to do it. Even when you have it, it's still a battle. But 1 Timothy 3, 4 actually says, this is how he qualifies leaders. This is fascinating. 1 Timothy 3, 4 says, um, this is the qualification for an elder or an overseer, as we know. He, it does mean he there, 
So this doesn't change when we hit the New Testament. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household well, how will he care for God's church? In other words, if you can't pastor yourself and your family, why would we have you pastor anyone else's family? It's the qualifications for leadership in the church. It's simply, you know how to pastor. You know how to care for your family. It's a high call. Very few of us ever feel like we're even remotely close to that. And that's why we need each other. That's why we need to rally over and over again this call. That's why we need to bolster, help bolster each other's faith and and say, you can do it. I mean, there's just nothing like, you know, we always, I, I watch this in the NHL. There's one guy, okay, he's, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm not a big fan of, like, hockey, but I just was so moved by this. This guy, uh, literally, guy takes a slap shot, the other guy just kind of lays down right in front of it, takes it like a slap shot right in the leg, like right, right here, breaks his leg. And you know what? Everyone else on the team said that was the moment we wanted to do better. They saw that sacrifice and it somehow encouraged them all. That's what we need to be for each other, men, as we do this. Except I I don't want you just to look at the other examples. I want you to be one of those examples. So that you help others. Because as biblical manhood is understood in the Bible, there's two things you have to know, I think, that are really helpful. The basic call for a man in Scripture is to work and to keep. You find this in the Garden of Eden. He's to work the garden and to keep the garden. What does that mean, work? Does that mean you get to do whatever you want? No, it means literally to work is to grow. To work is to help. To work is to make happen. It means you don't provide just for you. You begin to provide for others. That's what to work means. To keep means you protect what you are building. So if you're confused as to what really you do in a family as a man, as a husband, as a father, this is what you do. You work and you keep your family. You build into your family and you protect what you build in your family. If you're not married yet, you work and build in other men and you protect what you've built in other men. So there's no one who kind of can escape this. I think one of the great travesties in, a, in our world is we've told men, you don't work or keep anything until you're well over 30. And look where that's getting us. I'm reading a book as I research some of this by a lady in New York City who wrote a book called Manning Up. What? Are you kidding me? We have to have someone who's who lives in a very liberal area, who's not a Christian, tell men, you're slowly losing your relevance in life. Come on. At the very least, can we not do this in our church? And do it from a biblical perspective and do it in a way that is helpful to everyone. And no, I know for sure there are some, even women here this morning, who are very resentful at this whole idea And part of me wonders if it's not just because you've seen it done so poorly over your lifetime that you just do not believe it's actually what the Bible says. I don't doubt that. I don't doubt that. But that's what God puts upon the man in the garden. Says you work and you keep. And men, that is what we're called to do. We're called to take responsibility for things that are not our fault. We're called to lead out in things like repenting of our sin. Some people think, what does it mean for a, a, a man to lead? They think it means to have control. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean to have control. It doesn't mean to be violent. It doesn't mean that you don't shave Or you have lots of back hair. That's not what it means. It means to provide. It means to get serious about your sin. 
It means that you live a life. So when someone says, well, what is Jesus actually like? And how does Jesus love and serve the church? They can look to you and say, that's what it looks like. So what I'm hoping for, what I'm begging men for, is can we be a church where people put their hand and say, what does it look like to, to know what Jesus is like? I don't know what Jesus is like. That we can be a church filled with, with men that people can point to and say, that's what Jesus looks like. You don't know how to do this? You don't know how to live? Follow these guys. They're not perfect. Believe me, they are not perfect. But they do love Jesus. They do know how to repent. They know how to say, I'm sorry. They know how to teach their wives the gospel. They know how to be patient. They know how to not try and fix everything and how to just lovingly and compassionately care for people. And I want to be like those guys. I'm sick and tired of the church being filled with guys that people don't want to be like. I don't want to be one of them. And Jesus did a massive work on my heart about five years ago. And something happened. And I've never been the same. And I want that for you. But you've got to want it for you. I can't want this for you. I can't demand this. I can't do anything about it, to be honest. At the end of the day, you're going to go to your football game or your baseball. I'm going to a baseball game this afternoon. Speaking of, I should wrap this up quickly. I can't do anything about this. You can do something about it, but I can't. I can't save your soul. I can't tell you Jesus is better. Just you've got to believe that Jesus is better. Now, some of you say, well, you've talked to the men a lot. Is there anything for the ladies here? And I will say this. Yes, there is. And ladies, let me look, look at me. You have a massive power in your hands. You have enormous weight to play. You have an enormous role to play in this. Do you know why? Because you could make this really difficult for our guys to do as they stumble their way through, or you can make it really awesome for these guys. You can do that. Have you seen a pretty girl ever walk into a room and how guys will trip over themselves to meet her and do stuff for her? Because she has power. That who knows why God gave her that power, but she's got it. Right? You know what I'm talking about, ladies, don't you? There's power there. And you ladies, you can do positive things with this. You can make this really hard on guys. You can mock them. You can get frustrated with them. You can make fun of them. Or you can just be stubborn with them. You can ask them to do things, but then when they do them, you can not pay attention. Or you could cheer them on. You can make it an awesome place to be a guy. You have that power. Jesus gave it to you. Actually, in the book of Genesis, he actually said, uh, it's not good to be, for a man to be alone. I can attest to that. It is not good for a man to be alone. And he says, I will create a helper for him. Someone who can help. Now, right away, some of you are like, wait a second. This, are you saying that I'm just a helper? Before you, you get mad that I said that the Bible said that God created women to be helpers. Remember, he said the Holy Spirit of God was the capital H helper. And Jesus actually submitted to the Holy Spirit on his earthly ministry. So we're not talking about a less than role. That's the big misnomer when we start talking about roles and men leading and fathers leading is that women are less than men. That's not what the Bible says at all. Galatians is very clear about that. It's not, you don't have less access to God. You don't have less righteousness than God. You don't have less anything. Men and women are created equal, but they are different. But God did say, I created man to work and to keep, and I created a woman to help him work and keep. 
you cannot believe that. I would challenge you, look in your scripture and, and you argue with scripture. Don't argue with me, argue with scripture. But in that, I think we missed something when we said, if you are designed to be a helper, then help. I, I still, I, I joked about this all week. I have never met a man who, who has dated a, a lady who's a total mess and went, you know, she's a total mess, but man, I really believe I can fix her. And, and make her into a great woman. Have you ever heard that, guys? Have you ever run into someone? Have you ever, though, run into a woman who said, he's kind of a mess, but give me a couple of months with him and, and he'll be a different man? Right on, right? Okay. Why do you think that is? you think that's just accidental? Or do you think that's because God put it in your DNA to want to help make people better? Guys, we need the help. We need your help, ladies. We cannot do this without you. We need your support. We need that. And someone has asked me, how do you know when true biblical manhood, true fatherhood is really happening? And I said, when our women are thriving, we will be doing it right. When our women say, I love this church. Because the men here take care of me. They respect me. They love me. They care for me. They protect me. They teach me the gospel. They make it easier to be a Christian, not harder. And you know what? They make my life better. That's when we're doing it right, friends. But ladies, you can help. You can help. You will help. And so there's a challenge for you too. What do you want to do? I mean, this is, this is up to you guys. And I'm just a pastor. But you're the church. This is not my church. This is Jesus' church. This is your church. And the question is very simple. What's it going to be? What's it going to be? I love this picture. I'll close with this. great story in Old Testament book of Exodus. Most of you will miss it because it's so quick and short, but some smart man wrote it down because he knew Moses is attributed the book of Exodus. And there's a great story in there. Exodus chapter um, 24 or sorry, four verse 24 verse 26. So two verses, really short little story give you a little bit of background. There's Moses, and he's been called out by God to lead. And you know what Moses said? I'm not very good at this, so I don't want to do it. Moses said, fine, you're going to do it, but someone else is going to speak for you. You're going to do it anyways. You're just going to do it the hard way. So Moses is like, okay, well, what, like, what, are you going to, what should I say then? What's the message? You know, I know I have a communications director, but what's going to be the main message? And he says, tell him I am. Okay, what's going what's to accompany that? He said, some signs and wonders. Okay, take that little, you know, um, mech walking pole that you have and throw that down on the ground. And it's going to turn into a little snake. It's like, are you serious? This is what I got? Okay, boom, turns into a snake. It's like, okay, now stick your hand inside of your windbreaker, pull it out. It's going to be covered in leprosy. Do it again and it's going to disappear. It's like David Blaine still can't do this. Moses is like, okay, okay, done deal, let's go. Except you know what? Moses had forgotten a little sin that he thought wasn't a big deal. God had said, everyone who follows me, all the males of that household must be circumcised. If you don't know what circumcision is, Google it and be careful. Put a parental control filter on that before you Google it. Okay, it's literally the cutting off of flesh, very graphically. This is important in the story, and here's why. Because Moses thinks he's on charge in the mission. He's going to be the man. He's going to do this, but he forgets. He neglects this little sin. And guess who calls him out on it? Zipporah. It's a little firecracker, a flame. I wonder if that's where we get the name Zippo lighter from, because it's just fire. 
Just made that up right now. I'm not even kidding. But Zip, Zipporah, she's a little firecracker. So Moses is on the way to do mission. And you know what? The text actually says, at a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. <laughs> Serious. It's like, you're on mission? Not yet, you're not. So Zipporah, the little firecracker that she is, takes hopefully a sharp flint knife. Serious. Guys will know what I mean. Hopefully it's sharp and quick and cut off her son's foreskin and the bible says and touched moses's feet for the ladies who are doing the the uh thing on ruth what does feet often stand for genitals i'm not kidding you that's the bible's euphemism euph- euphemistic way of saying genitals so picture this there's the poor going you're supposed to be on mission you got to deal with this sin cuts off her son's foreskin, throws it at Moses' groin and says, how come you couldn't do this? And Moses is like, okay, Zip, you got me. You see what this is? This is a woman helping. It means you probably are going to have to get aggressive at times. You know, one of the best things my lovely wife does for me is she says, Trev, you need to lead me here. I need your leadership here. I can't handle this. You need to do this. You need to step up here. I'm like, okay. You know, and I get up and I fail. And... But she's helpful that way. This is a team effort. This is a church effort. Single men, single women, you're not excused from this. You can be helpful to this or harmful to this. You can distract us from doing this, or you can help us to do this. It's simply up to you. I don't think I've ever done this before. But I think we just need to act. I do. I stand up here, and when we respect something... When we're thankful, when we want to do something, we stand and we clap for people. So I'm going to pray. We're going to come. Before I pray, I just want to remind you what we're going to do here. We're going to partake of the family meal. Did you pick up in the language that we read? The man, Jesus Christ, he was a man. He was the manliest man that ever manned. He stood in the gap for you. He protected you. He died for you. He was beaten within an inch of his life and then suffocated to death on the cross for you so that you and I could hear the word of God correctly through his spirit. That's why he did that, because he loved you. That's what men are supposed to do. So you get to celebrate this and you get to ask Jesus, make me like you, Jesus. But before we do that, I'm just going to ask if those who want to covenant with God, this is what Nehemiah is like. He almost took him to court. said, stand up. And I want you to covenant with God. I want to be that kind of man. If you want to be that kind of man here, I would like you to stand. But I would like you to stay seated if you're not ready for it. Have the courage to stand and say, I'm covenant, covenanting with God because I want people to see you. I want people to see that you've made that covenant with God. I want those who know you to see that. But if you feel like you, you can't, you aren't there yet, have the courage to just stay seated. Because you shouldn't lie to God. It doesn't do you any good. He will find you out and he will pull your hair. But if you'd like to covenant with God, would you stand? And I'll pray for us. I don't, I don't want you men to simply have me pray for you. I want you to pray for you. Leslie texted me earlier and she says, well, have the men come up for prayer. I said, no, they need to pray for themselves. You need to do this for yourself. So you pray something along these lines in your heart. Jesus, I need your help. Jesus, I have sinned badly against you. 
I have neglected your word. I have neglected my call to work and to keep. I haven't taken this very seriously at all. I flippantly used your grace as a scapegoat for me to be lazy. And I want to change. And I want to be a man. I don't want to be a jerk. I don't want to be someone who needs control. I want to be a man who shows my church what Jesus is like. I want to love you, Jesus, with passion that is, moves other men. I want to be an example of what the gospel looks like at work in a man. Give me the courage to face anything that I face. Give me the love and compassion that you have for me and put that in my heart. And show me your grace often. And dear God, help me. Help me. Amen. Guys, I don't know how to explain in